I wanted to teach uh, tonight uh, one of my favorite teachings from our tradition. And um, I think in a moment you'll realize why, why, it's so, uh, why I love it so much. It touches on a number of themes that I think are very human, very universal, uh, deeply uh, relevant, and hopefully uh, inspiring. And last but not least, uh, there's a utility to this teaching. There's a way of using it. There's a way of walking out and saying, oh, this is something I can, you know, I have a doggy bag. I can go home and I can eat. You can eat what I left over today, and it's, it'll nourish you for a while, I think. So I wanted to start um, on the, the second source, which is on, the, I guess, the second size on the top of the page. I want to read some verses together from a story that many of you are familiar with in, in our tradition. And it, it, um, it's from the book of Exodus. Um, that we're going to be reading in a couple of weeks, so it's not relevant to this time of the year in terms of the narrative of the Bible, of the, of the Torah, but it's, it's a really beautiful piece of Torah, and it's, uh, it's uh, alive. So if anybody would like to read in the, uh, in the English, I'm going to read one verse in Hebrew, and then I'll ask somebody to read the verse in the English. Who would like to read the English? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Wow. I like great. the fact that you want to, That's but great. why don't we give one of our guests a turn? Okay, one of the guests will we'll come back to you, okay? Who would like to read verse 14? Oh, I'll just read it and somebody, somebody jump in, okay? Bechol ha'am, bechol ha'am ro'im et ha'kolot, v'yet ha'lapidim, v'yet kol ha'shofar, v'yet ha'har ha'shem, v'yar ha'am, v'yanu, v'yamdu merachok. Verse 14. And the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet, and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance. Vayomru and Moshe, Daber ata imanu v'nishma'a, v'ali daber imanu Elohim, hen namut. Verse 15. And said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Vayomru Moshe ela'am, al tira'u, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. <coughs> Verse 17. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So what's the context here for these four verses? Does anybody know? What's going on in the narrative of, of the Bible in our yearly... You know, that's one of the beautiful things about the Torah is that week in and week out, month in and month out, we get to talk about stuff that we might not normally talk about. That's really why Torah is so important. You know, it's not always the case that we'll sit down for a cup of coffee and talk about revelation or talk about idolatry and the like. So here the Torah is inviting us into a story, but does anybody know the context for this story? It's just before the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's just before the giving of the Ten Commandments or just after? Just after, yeah. So very nice, Ronnie. So just after the giving of the Ten Commandments um, in the Bible, so the, where are the Jewish people? They start off in the land of, of Egypt. 
right? There, a lot of miracles happen in London, Egypt, and they make their way out. Of course, Charlton Heston is leading the way, and they get to the Red Sea, really the Reed Sea, and the Reed Sea splits, right? And they make it to the other side, and then they get into the desert, and there's all kinds of stuff going on, right? There's all kinds of uh, fighting and, and, and conversations, right? Just trying to, we have flies. Oh my God, it's not a fly. It's a it's a, a ladybug. Find out where it stops and then you can read from that. Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> ladybug is biblically nasty. I like it. <laughs> so so yeah, they're in the desert. They're in the desert, right? And everything's happening. There's a well, and they hit a rock, and everybody, you know, people, we know the story, right? And they wind up at Mount Sinai, the foot of the mountain, and it's a big day. Like the big day, right? It's not you know, it's not it's not like you know, it's not your average day. They're getting brought out by Moses, and Moses says, right, make sure for three days you don't come, right, you don't have married relationship, you don't get all these wonderful things not to do, right? Get really specially holy, get ready, and then they come to the foot of the mountain, and Moses makes a big uh, rope around the bottom of the mountain, says, don't come near the mountain. The mountain is fire, right? That's what's going on at the top of verse uh, fourteen. And then what happens? What, what goes on? So God speaks the Ten Commandments, and what happens? People want to go there. They want to go to, they're already at the mountain, that's good. The people are at the mountain. But then what happens? They hear that there's fire, and there's thunder, and there's all of this, the light show, the light show, and they have all these things going on, and what happens? They get scared, right? They get terrified. So what do they say to Moshe? They say to Moses, you deal with it. Listen. <laughs> I mean, what, everybody, look at, look at, look at everybody, everybody look at verse 15, because we're studying Torah together, everybody. So we're looking at verse 15 together. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us, or we will die. You, Moshe, you're, you be the intermediary. You speak to God. You go to God, and you, you, know, you know what you're doing. And... Uh, like this is a lot of the this is kind of a rabbinic model of sorts and, and uh, you know often unfortunately like I'm your private rabbi rabbi you know like you get your private rabbi you're my Moses you you go up to the mountain right you go to the mountain you speak to God and and we're okay we'll be over here we're we're good you know you do it now. In many, many respects, and we're not going to come back to this, actually, tonight, but in many respects, this is a, a very, very important moment in the entire trajectory of the book of Exodus. In essence, this request of the Jewish people will be countered by God's request that instead of Moses coming to the mountain, that God will come to the Jewish people, and there'll be a tabernacle. Right? The, the role of the Jewish faith is not to have one person go up the mountain but for a group of people to pull God down from the mountain and into our lives. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's the, that's the thrust of the book of Exodus. Right? God's not up on the mountain over there, but God is in your midst, in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, here on earth. But for now, let's just put that on the side. We'll talk about that some other time. But for, for in this moment, learning this piece, they're essentially asking Moses to step in. So Moses says, okay. Moshe says, do not be afraid. God came to test you in order to give you a sense of that awesome, numinous quality of God's presence. But still in verse 17, which is where we're going to stay now for the rest of the time, verse 17, the people remained at a distance 
while Moshe approaches the thick darkness where God was. Okay? Moshe goes into the cloud to speak to God, and the people are on the outside. Okay? Now, if you flip the page over, sorry to my ladybug friend. She's not going anywhere. She's staying right here on the page. This teaching that we're going to do now for the rest of the night, they're a little, little spit up. A little bit. It's getting there. This teaching that we're going to do for the rest of the night on that verse, verse 17 of the book of Exodus, of chapter 20, comes from the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, who was the greatest, one of the greatest teachers in our tradition. He was the founder of the Hasidic movement. Right? Almost every Hasid, anybody that calls himself a Hasid, right, one of those devotees that you'd see in many of those communities, if you uh, are a Hasid, you are a follower, a devotee, ultimately, of this great teacher who lived uh, from 1700 to 1760. The Baal Shem Tov Yisrael ben Eliezer, the Sarah. His great-grandson, name was Nachman of Breslev. Anybody hear of Nachman of Breslev? The Breslevers? So if Nachman of Breslev was, and is, some say the founder of modern Hebrew literature because he wrote stories. And in some ways, he was one of the most enigmatic and mysterious teachers in the Jewish tradition. And without a doubt, he was an existential thinker. It's hard to apply that term, existential thinker, to someone who wasn't exposed to the movement called existentialism. But when you read his writings, you feel that he's an existential thinker, feeler. So we're going to read his interpretation of this moment, when the people stand at a distance, and Moses goes into the dark cloud. Okay? Great. Who would like to read? Any readers? On the, the first page, read a paragraph. Okay. Anyone? Yeah. Well, I already did, so maybe... Anybody that hasn't read yet? Yeah. Ariel. Ariel? Ariel? You read? Um, so the people remained at a distance. On the first page. Sorry. It's okay. I'm with you. I, I don't know where we are. We're on the first page. I'm sorry. We turned over to the first page. We're not going to address what teaching is. Got it. And we're going to the people start remained at a distance while Moshe approached the thick cloud where God was. If one spends one's entire life in materiality and later on gets enthusiastic and wants to follow God's path, then the quality of judgment argues against that person and doesn't allow him to follow God's ways and creates a hindrance for him. But God desires kindness and leniency and hides God's self, as it were, in the hindrance. And one who is aware looks at the hindrance and finds, that, finds there the Creator. As it says in the Jerusalem Talmud, If someone says to you, Where is your God? You shall say to that person, In a great city in Aram. As it says, God calls to me, to me from Seir. So, great, thank you. Well read. <laughs> Thank you. She's a keeper. That's good. That was our second date, right there. If one spends their entire life in materiality, now read here materiality. Okay, let me back up a second. So we're reading a 19th century or late latter part of the 18th century, uh, 19th century. Uh, rabbinic thinker, whose assumptions about the world are very different than ours, right? In many, many, many ways. His assumptions about Jews and non-Jews, his assumptions about body and spirit, his assumptions about um, many things. But 
it's very possible to juice these teachers. Meaning we take them and we put them into our juicer and there's going to be a lot of pulp. There's going to be some things that are like, okay, how, would, how do we make this work? Right? How is this teaching going to work? And we try to extract a very deep lesson. And here it won't be hard. But there, be, there are going to be some things that are going to catch you and say, oh, am I immersed in materiality? Right? What does it mean to be immersed in materiality? So, first of all, to be immersed in materiality for in his Veltachon, in his worldview, meant that you were immersed in, like, in the world of the body as opposed to the world of the mind and the heart or the, or the spirit. For us, there wouldn't be such a split. Right? I wouldn't personally ascribe to such a split. But what he could be meaning here is, if you spend your whole life focused on anything but your inner life, because we might say inner versus outer, when he means matter versus spirit, yeah? We might say somebody who's externally focused their whole life. They never ask questions that are going inside. How do, what does it mean to me? What's the meaning of things? What's the function of it? They're very much in the behavior of things, right? They have their things set up that by the time they're 15 and 21 and 29 and 34, they have their whole life, in a sense, happening to them from the outside, and it's not happening from the place on the inside. Because if you're spending your whole life on the outside and you want to go on the inside, the first moment of going on the inside might, might not be so easy. That turn from the outside to the inside might actually um, be difficult. It might bring a hindrance or an obstacle. Let's read what he says again. If one spends one's entire life in materiality, and later on you get enthusiastic and wants to follow God's path, let's say the path of truth here. It doesn't have to be God's path per se. But here it means the world of spirit, the world of the inner world, like inner place, right? Then the quality of judgment, which in Kabbalah and Kabbalese means the, the law of, of the world, right? The quality of, justice, of judgment or justice means the way of things, right? If you're smoking your whole life and you decide one day that you'd like to clean up your act, that first week or that first day might not be the easiest day, right? If you're eating in a certain way, and you want to go on a cleanse. And it just so happens to be, let's say. And just using a random example. Like, you, know. you know, as soon as you... My rabbis in, in, in yeshiva used to say that in a room that has a lot of light, it's easy to, to actually miss a lot of the dust. But if you close the lights and you turn a little bit of light into the room and you see a lot of dust. So the minute you want to focus a little bit of light into your life, in that moment it can feel as if the opposite of what you wanted to have happen is happening. In other words, here you are, you make a decision, and it feels like you make the most important decision in your life, and all of a sudden, instead of feeling the universe is supporting you, you feel all of a sudden that there's an obstacle or there's a risen to meet you. And, hey, I made a decision, but all of a sudden now there's a hindrance or an obstacle. Right? So the way that he's, the way that he's reading this, let's, let's read it inside again. <clears throat> The quality of judgment, what I call karma, argues against that person, doesn't allow him to follow God's ways, and creates a hindrance for him. For God desires kindness and mercy and leniency and hides God's self, as it were, in the hindrance. And one who is aware looks at the hindrance and finds there the Creator, as it says in the Jerusalem Talmud. If someone says to you, where is your God, you shall say to that person in a, in a great city in Aram. As it says in the verse in Isaiah, God calls to me from Seir. The city of Seir was kind of like Las Vegas in the Bible. <laughs> Se Seir was like a city of temptation and violence. 
And the verse in Isaiah says, God has called to me from a city that is full of temptation and violence. Meaning, God's location is not, right, in Jerusalem. In this verse from Isaiah, God is calling from the city where you would least likely, you would least, least imagine that God would be in that place. And from that place, he's saying, that's where God is hidden. So he gives you the whole teaching in the first passage. As soon as we make a decision to be on the spiritual path or to do something positive, to generate positive karma, to generate positive energy, something right, that will accrue for us, we meet a hindrance, we meet an obstacle. And what's Rav Nachman's advice? If God was found in the city called Aram, or if God is found in the city called Seir, if God is found in those places, then where is God hiding? God hides in the, in the obstacle, in the hindrance. We have to unpack that a little bit more, okay? We have to unpack that a little bit more. <clears throat> so, who wants to read the second paragraph? Can you just tell us what the relationship is between Aram and Seir? The great city of Aram in, is the, the Talmudic, right? That would be the Talmudic, that rabbinic era's city that is like Seir. Okay. So they're the same, they're equivalent. They're equivalent. Okay. Seir and Aram are equivalent, and he, and he proves it. He proves, the Talmud proves that Aram is where God is by saying, look at the verse from Isaiah where God said, I'm coming from Sydney. Right? So they're equivalent cities, meaning they're both these deplorable, despicable, low places, and God is making a collect call from that place. Right? That's where God is. And so in, in, our, in our tradition, by the way, this is a deeper meaning of, of many Talmudic statements where God is found. Like, there's another Talmudic saying that says that Messiah, the son of David, is found in the gates of Rome. Now, Rome was the enemy of the Jewish people at that time. So what's the Messiah doing in Rome? It's the very same idea. That in other words, the place where you would least imagine, least likely find, or in your conception of the divine, while you're out looking for the light, God is hiding in the dark. Right? While you're out looking for the light, God is hiding in the dark. Like that great... Um, what's that great... Uh, anecdote about Eddington, or I've heard in a number of different uh, names, where the, the gentleman, I think I heard it, Mullah Nasruddin, was a Sufi joker, like the wise men of Helm. There was a guy named Mullah Nasruddin, he was this uh, funny character. I also heard in his name, so two people, their story is that the guy who's looking for his keys, right, you know this story? They see the guy, Mullah sees a guy underneath a, a, a lamp, and he's uh, moving around, moving around, looking, 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 searching, and, and a friend walks by and says, Mullah, what are you looking for? He says, I'm looking for my keys. He says, oh, did you lose them over here? He said, no, I lost them back in my house. So why are you looking for them over here? This is where the light is. <laughs> <laughs> right? Isn't that great? I mean, I, so looking, looking for the keys where the light is, instead of where it's really hidden, which is in the dark. That's the, that's the beauty of that story. So often, so often looking for what we need, what's going to open the keys, like the, what's going to open our hearts, our lives, looking for them in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. right? Looking for them in the wrong place. So he says, if the God of, uh, if God someone says, where is your God? You say, oh, my God is, is found in, in, the, in the place, uh, in the slums of, of, of Mumbai, in India. Mm -hmm. right? That's, I mean, Mother Teresa in Calcutta, I mean, that's what she was doing. She was saying, this is where Jesus is. Right? Not, um, not looking for Jesus in, in the nice cathedrals, because that's not really, that's not, there's no chachmah there, there's no wisdom there. I'm doing my work in the dark place. So here, you know, Nachman says, 
If someone says to you, where's your God? You say, in the great city of Aram, Aram Naharayim, right? That's so who wants to read the second paragraph? Yes, please. And one who is not aware, when one sees the hindrance, immediately moves away from it. The hindrance is like a thick cloud, for a thick cloud is dark, and the hindrance is dark. The words darkness and hindrance, or that which holds back, share the same three Hebrew letters, Heb, Shin, Kaf, as it is written in Genesis, you have not withheld your son. Hmm. This is the meaning of the verse, so the people remained at a distance. When they see that the cloud, namely the hindrance, they remain at a distance. But Moses, who represents the quality of awareness for all of Israel, approached the hindrance where the blessed God is actually hidden. So the word for darkness in our tradition, choshech, right, the three letters choshech, uh, is the same word used in the Akedah, the story of the binding of Isaac, where God's rewarding Abraham for not holding back his child, shalom chasachta. It's with a sin and a shame, they're interchangeable. So he says, based on this playful reading of the Hebrew word for darkness, that the withholding of the light, the withholding of his son Isaac, choshech, chasach, Darkness is that place where God's light is being held back. It's a dark place. It's a hindrance. And the wise person, he says, or someone, let's start with someone who's not wise. The, the person who's not wise, the person who hasn't cultivated awareness, the person who is, the person who is, um, who is not uh, practiced in working with hindrances or obstacles, will say, oh, there's a dark cloud. I'm not going in there. Or there's an obstacle. I'm not going in there. Right? And Moshe, he says here, is the archetype of the one who walks into the dark cloud. I mean, can you see how he's reading this verse? Everybody, let's all go back to this, the other page. Let's look at, let's, let's look at on, on, the, on the back page. Go back to the verse 17. So what happens in the story, everybody? So here's Moshe. Here are the people who say, I, I, don't want, I don't want what God is giving. Right? Because God is coming down. He's scaring me. I'm scared. Too much. Too much. You... You, Moshe, you go. So Moshe says, listen, don't be afraid. It's a test. It's only a test. Right? This is just a test. And Moshe says, okay. Verse 17. I'm going to walk into the dark cloud. The, the people stand at a distance, and Moshe walks into the cloud. Moshe walks into the cloud. And Rav Nachman, if you turn back the page now, you hear the way he's reading this, this beautiful verse? says, Moshe is that quality in each and every one of us that is willing to walk into the dark cloud, even though our initial response to the dark cloud is, I'm afraid, and I'm going to stand at a distance. So each and every one of us, in this text, Rabbi is saying, each and every one of us has obstacles. Whenever we want to turn towards something in our life that is constructive, powerful, health-inducing, corrective, he calls it the way of God. But we can say many things, an exercise program, a diet. You can go from the most banal to the most sublime. Whenever you want to transform something in your life, you will be immediately met, he says, by a dark cloud, yeah. a hindrance, an obstacle, something that says, no, no. And so you have two responses, the response of the people or the response of Moshe. The response of the people would be, I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going near there. It's, it's an obstacle. I'm scared. It's scary. I'm not, I'm not touching it. 
And that response, by the way, on a moment-to-moment -moment level, which we'll come to shortly, is, I mean, it's the most powerful hindrance that there is. The hindrance of being afraid of a hindrance is the most powerful way of avoiding. Right? I heard somebody once called a void dance. You dance around the void. A void dance. That a void dance is that there's a void in my life. There's something missing. There's something empty. And as I come to, come to touch it, I'm too scared to jump in, so I kind of do this little thing, this one step, two step around it. I do it in my mind, I do it in my head, I do it in my heart. And in an extreme expression of that, it becomes really unmanageable, right? If people who are, you're looking at your friends from the outside, you're saying, you are avoiding, you're doing the whole avoid dance. I'm watching, you're not looking, you refuse to, you're not turning to look at it. It's like you've got this thing going on in your life, you have your kid, you have your, your job, you have whatever, and there, something is happening over there, it's a dark cloud, you're scared of it. And if you just, you know, I was reading, um, I was loving and reading Steve Jobs' uh, biography. And uh, so powerful. And the, the, the beauty of that man was that he, or at least the way Walter Isaacson says it, is that he had the ability to imagine what wasn't and make it real. Mm -hmm. And the shadow of that was that he had also, the shadow was that he imagined what was, wasn't, and it didn't go away. He thought that his mind could overcome what was already real and undo it. So he talked about how he avoided dealing with his, you know, his own daughters. For years, he did the avoidance. And guess what? He was also adopted. And people would say to him, they knew they watched the whole thing happening, but he had this uncanny ability to use his in intense imagination to both create reality and then distort it. He was in denial. Right? He was in a place of, well, if I don't look at it, then, it's, then it'll go away. Right? If I don't look at it, then it's going to go away. And here, Nachman says, the only way, I mean, the only way to have revelation from God, because this is in the part of the Torah talking about revelation, the only way to get what God wants from you is to be willing to go to the place where God is testing you and say, I'm going to walk in. And I mean, it comes up all the time. It comes up in our own hearts and our own minds, right? It comes up a thousand times a day. And we'll get to that in, in a moment. So, so far, everybody with me? We're all, all together? On the same page, literally? Okay, I need a leader for... Uh, oh, and by the way, the, the throwaway reference to the Akedah, for those the, the amazing that he brings in the Akedah, he brings in the, uh, the binding of Isaac, is also very profound. Because Isaac... You couldn't imagine a more dark cloud than Abraham walking in to not knowing that his son was going to be returned to him. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he imports that into the story, right? he imports this, we're talking about Revelation, Exodus, but he imports a moment from chapter 22 of the book of Genesis, and it's like, how does that have to do? Oh, of course, because we're all Abraham on some level. Well, it all speaks to fear of the unknown and faith that the unknown, you can walk into the RFL because... Yeah. God is in it. And because you have faith that God's there, yeah. But it is the unknown. It's not only the... You know, that's part of the avoidance. Right. Is that you don't know. That's yeah. the scary part. Right. You don't know what's in the RFL. Right. In the what? In the dark in place. The, dark the RFL, place. the dark cloud. is RFL, A-R-A-F-E-L. So in the RFL, in the dark cloud, you don't know. Right. So is that, does that resonate? Does anybody ever... ever, ever <laughs> like, but what would you do? Like, if your kids, like, you know, 
I mean, is this the kind of parenting advice that, I mean, all the, <laughs> do, you, do you tell your kids to walk into the, because I mean, honestly, we're getting, I, I have some questions at the end that I bet we can, we might as well explore them right now. Like, I mean, this is great advice on, sometimes, right? But is it always true that we want us to walk into the dark place? Does it, or does it depend, or what do you think? Does it depend how dark it is? Does it depend what the dark place is? I mean, what do you Sorry. think? Why is the unknown always dark? Well, that's a good question, too. I think that that's a good question. I think that the metaphor of light is often, uh, it's, it's interesting to look at it this way, like, that it has been used, but it makes sense that when you know something, it's as if you can see it. As often, I see what you're saying. And when something is, un, is invisible, often people think, oh, I don't know what it is. Which is not always the case, right? Mm -hmm. There are things that you see when, in the dark that you can't see in the light. Well, I mean, what, you, what you're saying is, as a parent, you don't want your children to uh, experiment with the dark side, uh, you know, drug addiction and all that. Right? Yeah. Hopefully they're not going to... And yet, I, even Red Zalman has talked about, I think he's, he's talked about how he came across youngsters who found God by doing LSD, wasn't it? It's interesting you go to the dark, you went to the dark side. I was not, so that's what you associate but, with dark side. Or are we just talking about the fear of being great? The fear of, you know, my own greatness. So okay. I'm going to avoid taking risks and, and stepping into a job that maybe a little reach for me, but I'm going to do it because I can. And then I run away because maybe I can't do it. So uh -huh. it depends on whether you're talking so about the like dark a, side a, a, or... It's the called the Jonas Syndrome, right? Abraham Maslow coined the term the Jonas Syndrome, that you run away from your greatness. As Jonah ran away from his prophetic call, you run away from, you know, that Mary Williamson quote that mm -hmm. I think was attributed to um, Nelson Mandela and Mary Williamson about what we fear is being too great. Fear of your own success. Fear of your own success. Uh, so you come to that's the dark cloud. Okay. Anybody? Yeah, Jeff. I think you have to be in a um, in a position of safety or being held in some way uh, before you can take that leap. Um, if you're completely um, in terror and fear and take the leap, then you can become completely disoriented, disjointed, you know, go crazy. You know, uh, kids who take drugs, good example. If you have a kid with a really solid background, you know, generally good values, you know, secure in himself, then testing waters that are not so safe don't necessarily, I mean, they can lead to disaster, but you know, they have a much better chance of coming out of those waters than someone who's completely ungrounded. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's true of us. When we take a leap into a place that's an unknown or a scary place, if we're um, prepared for it, and if we're held by others, or, or, or by ourselves, by our experience, then we can come out the other side. And if we don't, we may never come out the other side. Which is why a lot of us are afraid to go in, because we're never secure enough in where we are now to try to go to a place where um, uh, <clears throat> we may never emerge. So here, see, I, I, want, I, want to, I want this to continue to go around, but I just want to make one little... One, one point. One, the dark 
cloud and, and the hindrance, right? So a hindrance or an obstacle is different in my, personally, I think it's different than, than the dark world or the underworld or the underbelly of things or the, or the, or the difficult place in, um, in reality, right? Here we're speaking in some sense about places inside of us where obstacles arise and our reaction to the obstacle. So I just want to keep it clear because I, I agree with this, the, the point where you're making that if you go into the dark cloud and, it's, and you're not stable, right, then it can be very dangerous. Um, but that's assuming what the dark cloud is, but that it's not a hindrance, that it's like a dark place or it's um, an experience that, you know, that, that we have to have to grow. But I want to talk specifically about how we work with an obstacle, a hindrance. Something that's, that, in a sense, is painful and blocks our access. So we can kind of focus and be focused on that. Um, the, other the, the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin, yeah. Is that it's only when your, your difficulty has become so unbearable that that unknown is not... So threatening anymore. That the challenge that God gives you can be enormous, and that actually can be the push that enables you to seek God. Stepping into that place. The word unbearable, I think, is very key in what she was just saying when something becomes so unbearable, the, the status quo becomes so unbearable that you have. There's only one other choice, is to take that leap of faith. Or not. Or not. I mean, I, right, either, right, either this, which is when the pain of being at a distance from the, from the dark cloud is so great that the fear of entering into the dark cloud is, not, is no longer has its uh, hold on you. That's so, one place. Thank you. Sometimes it's just honoring your fear and, and just being very present in your fear and present in your pain and present, just honoring it. And I think that's like a big, well, I mean, I don't know what more to say, but I feel that when you uh, kind of honor, it's, it's like in terms of drugs, to me, that's like the the boy dance and all that. I don't think that's what we're really talking about. I think that we're always, there's always that dark cloud. We're always challenged in some way. So it's like just honoring your fears, honoring your whatever it is, and just being very present with it and giving yourself grace in a way and allowing yourself to feel and experience and yeah, see, I was, see, this is where I was going a little bit with Kim. I was going to that place, Kim, where I was thinking that drugs and, and those kinds of experiences are exactly the opposite of what Rav Nachman is saying. Mm -hmm. Rav Nachman is saying that those are, I wanted to ask you all, who's, who's your Moshe? Like, who goes into the dark cloud? Right? Is, you send in yourself, your own awareness, your own compassion, your own presence, your own honoring, turning to that place of pain, turning to that place of fear, turning to the, to the hindrance, whatever the hindrance might be, or do you fill that void with something that isn't attention, that is a running away? I, in, in my sense, drugs, more often than not, and any other kind of outlet like that, is exactly 
what the people are doing, which is standing at a distance from it. They're not touching the place. They're dancing around it. All those things are avoidances. They're, they're all dancing around the place. <clears throat> but to go into that place is to turn to it and to say, what is the quality of this? Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up. Um, how did you work with obstacles? Well, David, it's like that TV show, what's it called, like The Biggest Loser or something? I, I've never actually watched the show. Oh, I've just seen advertisements for it. And it looks to me like you have people who are, by medical definition, morbidly obese. They're more than 20 or 30 percent over their ideal body weight, so they're very unhealthy. And a lot of times they look like young people, but these are people that are basically looking like a heart attack on a plate, you know, going to happen any minute. So they basically, they're fearful of gaining more weight because they think they're going to die. And so they have two choices. They can go on this show and try to exercise and, and lose weight and, and go to that hindrance, which is losing weight, which for them is basically impossible. That's how they got to be so heavy. Or they can be like Moshe and basically say, okay, I'm going to give in to this now. I'm going to go through the dark cloud and do what I need to do to diet and to exercise and to lose weight so that I come out you know, more positive and a better person at the end. I mean, that's what I was thinking when you were... Right, that's very similar to what, to what Marion was saying. You know, they, they hit a rock bottom, essentially. Like, like, like right? The, the reality is that if they don't change, then something has to change, right? But if we're looking... Um, and, absolutely. But that's an extreme example. I mean, it's hard for us to sometimes relate to something like that. But let's look on the back of the, the page again. <coughs> The back is right. The back is the not the first page, but the second. Um, in, in number two, in number it should be number three, but it's repeated number two. The five hindrances. You see that? It's really number two. It's after number two. It's the second number two. Two two. After number seventeen. Right. After seventeen. Right. The five hindrances. These are. This is taken from uh, our Buddhist brothers and sisters. So whenever you sit down to meditate, or to be quiet, or to relax your mind, take a bath, whatever it is, if you try your hardest to stay present in the breath, or to stay in the body, or whatever it is, if you try to relax your mind, if you've ever sat even for 15 minutes in your life and tried to relax your mind, our Buddhist brothers and sisters say that five, immediately, there are at least one of these five hindrances will arise. Um, grasping, you'll want more. Your mind will want more of a thought, which will lead to another thought and another thought. You will, um, two, you'll have a painful thought, which will lead you to another thought which tries to push the first thought out of the way. That's called aversion. The third uh, hindrance will be what's called um, restlessness. You'll notice that your mind is restless. It's racing. Or your body is restless. You can't sit still. Right? So much is going on. You have a lot of energy. Or the opposite is true. Number four. You have horrible translation. Sloth or torpor. You can clearly see that this was like British, like really old British guys translating the like early Buddhist texts. Sloth and torpor. It could be like two characters in like in like an animated short, you know. Sloth and torpor. <laughs> Which essentially is the opposite, right? It's a locker. It's the opposite, right? It's the opposite of restlessness, right? What is what does sloth and torpor look like when you're sitting trying to relax your mind? It's this, right? Right. First thing that happens to ninety-five percent of people who sit on the cushion or go on, on any retreat, first the first time they sit, their mind is like it's either racing, and it's usually not, 
It's usually they, they start to get bored and then all of a sudden they're out. Right? And the fifth hindrance is doubt. It can be speculative doubt, it can be cynical doubt. What is this I'm doing? This is stupid. I can't believe this. This is ridiculous. I, you know, this is why I'm not a Buddhist. Jews are better at doing tikkun olam. I don't sit like this. You know, sh- you know, sh- you know sh- what is it, sh- Sheldon, when you're coming home? I'm staring at my navel all day. This is stupid stuff. Or the Buddha is wrong. Right. So one of these five, one of these five hindrances will arise. And you know what the Buddhists say? That if, if, for example, you are sitting, and right, let's just use a real example. I'm sitting and relaxing. I'm, I'm watching my mind, and immediately anger arises. I have anger. I'm angry, so I'm thinking about something that makes me angry. And I know that I'm not supposed to be angry. I'm a rabbi. It's not okay. <laughs> so I push that thought out of my mind, right? I say, no, no, don't be angry. I say, go away. Go away. And what the Buddhists say, and this is why it's so beautiful, this teaching is so relevant, the Buddhists say, turn towards the thought itself. Turn towards the anger. In that moment of being averse to your anger, because anger is also a form of, of, of aversion itself, aversion to aversion creates more aversion. Right? Aversion to grasping creates more grasping. All of those things, when they are touched with just very gentle, simple awareness. Awareness means aware of it. Oh, I'm angry. And being able to hold that state. Let's, number three, just the next line. Open to it. This is from Jack Kornfield, of course, a nice Jewish Buddhist teacher here <laughs> in America. Who wants to read 3A? Open to it. Stephanie. Open to it and observe it without identifying with it or taking it as self. It is not my restlessness, but rather the impermanent state born out of conditions and bound to change. Like everything else, restlessness is a composite, a series of thoughts, feelings, and sensations. But because we believe it to be something solid, it has a great deal of power over us. When we stop resisting and simply allow it to move through us with mindful attention, we can see how transitory and unsubstantial the state actually is. So the label, my anger, right? Anger arises in my body. It arises in my mind. That thing called anger is actually, that A-N-G-R are just a group of syllables attached to essentially a sensation in the body, and thoughts. The thoughts are constellated. It could be four or five thoughts. I can't believe my mother usually starts like that. (laughs) (laughs) Or now, I can't believe the rabbi. It's a thought begins, and then a group of thoughts constellate. And in that moment, when I turn the lamp of awareness, the light of awareness, on the sensation, on the thoughts in the mind and in the body, what I notice is that there isn't anything called my restlessness. There's just shoulder, sensations, heat, cold, thoughts. And that that label, my restlessness, is, doesn't exist. It's just a label. The only thing there is just sensations and thoughts that are awaiting my loving, compassionate awareness that holds them. And in that moment, that experience of restlessness dissolves. It's, it's fascinating. It's, it's profound. 
And you can do that with any other moment-to-moment awareness. Now, why is that such a, you know, a big deal? Well, it's a big deal. Because if the turning towards the obstacle is the key to unlocking its potential, if God is hidden there, as we would use in our language, whereas the Buddhists say that compassion is hidden in the hindrance itself, right? The hindrance that arises, my falling asleep, wants my awareness, wants my awareness to penetrate it. It's the case of everything in our life that turns to us in some moment and says, here, I'm an obstacle, I'm dark, I'm difficult. <coughs> that difficult children are actually asking not to be disciplined, but for asking us to look at them and notice them in a particular way. Problems that, need, that we push through with energy are really not asking for that forceful pushing, but are asking for a turning. Like, I don't know about you, but when I grew up, no pain, no gain. Right? If I felt pain, I wanted to get rid of the pain. I get rid of the pain by pushing through it. Right? I didn't turn towards the pain and say, Oh, how are you? I didn't turn my attention towards the pain and, and penetrate into the pain. And we still do it, by the way. Right? If we get a headache, the first thing we try to do is we try to push it away. We, our shoulders start to hurt. We go, get away. Stop it. Get away. Let me, somebody come and work it out of my shoulder. Somebody get, get it out. Get it away. And it's that way of working with what's dark or what's difficult or what's painful or what is asking for our attention, but in a way that seems unpleasant, that um, requires skillful means, as our Buddhist friends would say, skillful means to turn towards it and be with it. What's amazing is that in this teaching from Osnafim, the word for an obstacle, mania, a mania is an obstacle in Hebrew. The same word that is obstacle in Hebrew is also the same word for motivation. Monea. Mm-hmm. Something that motivates you. The mania is monea. And mania is an obstacle that can, it can motivate you. Right? As our Chinese friends would say, every obstacle is an opportunity. It could be, depending on how you work with it. You, you remind me of the, the, the toy that we had as kids. Yeah. We stuck our fingers in and eat either side, and the harder we tried to pull our fingers out, the more it held. Right. As soon as we relaxed. Exactly. I tell you, Donald, thank you so much because I was thinking about that today when I was working with, with, with Bear, my son. He's two years and three months. And of course, this is the willful age. You know, this is where he's asserting his will and he's saying, no, 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 no. And he came out of a nap, and I was holding him. And uh, he, was, he started to struggle with me. But his struggle was making it worse. Because I was trying to soothe him, because he had just woken up and he was a little bit scared, and I was trying to soothe him. But of course, as a child, he's saying, no, 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 and he's, and he's flailing his arms. And the more he flails his arms, the worse he gets. Right? Because I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. Yes, what you do? <laughs> what do you mean what I do, you know? <laughs> I said, there's a dark cloud here, man. <laughs> and you ain't getting through. You're not for the breast love. So what, if you would like something, you would just stop? Well, yeah, I let go a little bit, but then I held him the way he wanted to be held, and it worked out. But the point is... They had their own Yeah, how they were down. is mommy in, in, in Amharic or something like that. It's really very, It's really very beautiful. So this is the deeper meaning of, of Hanukkah, everybody. We, we knew we had to get back to Hanukkah, right? <laughs> Hanukkah is 
Hanukkah is, and I wanted to do another, I'll talk about Hanukkah. But I particularly wanted to do this teaching tonight because of Hanukkah, but also because it, it very much relates to Roman in many ways, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain. First of all, you'll notice that, that everyone that I quoted here is Jewish, including the Buddhists. <laughs> Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield are both very well-known, renowned Buddhist teachers. And my experience when I was in my uh, 20s led me to believe that, uh, that I wasn't sure if there were any Buddhists that weren't Jewish. <laughs> everywhere I went, it was, you know, every retreat was being led by a Buddhist. Sylvia Borstein, you know, the, great gra the grandmother of, of, of American Buddhism was Jewish. She even wrote a book, don't, don't, don't Just Do Something, Sit There. That was the real book. So, so we have this wonderful, this, wonderful, um, this wonderful place where Buddhism and Judaism come together. And what it means is, is that there are universal truths that every spiritual tradition is expressing. And they say it in their own way, just like every family is trying to be a family, but they do it in their own unique way. That's the truth. And so, I love French, I love English, I love all these, it's all unique. And so the unique way that Buddhism said it was that there are five hindrances. And the unique way that Judaism said it is that if you want to have a real deep revelation of God, you have to be Moshe-like and be willing to go into a dark place and to extract the God that is in the dark cloud. It's the same idea. And it's Really, it's our work. And Hanukkah, that's why Hanukkah is the most, in my personal opinion, it's the most amazing holiday out of all the holidays. It's the only holiday on the Jewish calendar that connects two months. It begins at the end of one month and, and goes into the next month, which means that there's a new moon in the middle of the holiday, which means to say that you begin at the darkest point of the month. The 25th day of the month is the darkest point and you walk in three days, four days, right? 28th, 29th day, the lunar month. And then amazingly, on the fifth night of Hanukkah, every year, there's a new moon. The moon is reborn. Which means to say that in the dark place, in the dark place of every month, the seeds of redemption, the seeds of hope are hidden. That's the teaching of Hanukkah. So you light one candle. Say, so listen, even though the moon's not bright, right, I'm lighting one candle. Uh, the moon's not yet bright, lighting a second candle. The third candle, we'll do what we can. But we have faith that on the second night, the moon will be reborn. It's the deepest, deepest thing in the whole world. We, we go into the dark cloud called the end of the month of Kislev, and we, are, we find God in the dark place. And that was the meaning of, of, of the whole holiday. It was created by the rabbis, whatever, but it was, that's the meaning of the whole holiday. And that's the meaning of all of these holidays of life. That in the dark place of the winter, we go into the winter, but that's, you know, right? The seed that in, right? And then the sun's light becomes the rose, right? In, in the winter, there's that seed that's underneath the ground. And it's rotting, and it's rotting, and it's rotting. Negretto is darkening, it's blackening, it's blackening, it's blackening. The seed is every... And then, boom! The word in Hebrew for winter is choreth. And it, had, it shares an etymology with the word that many of you will know, spicy, harif. People know that word, harif? Like in, in, in Israel, if you want to get some spicy hot stuff, you get harif. Like good spicy stuff. I remember that. Yeah? Harif. Some harif. So when you're, when you're or, or, or you know, if you're with an Israeli friend, you say, can you pass the harif? Right. right? The hot sauce. And that's meaning that the winter brings out the flavor of the year. 
Just like the spicy brings out the flavor. It's like these things, these places in our life that make us tasty, are the capacity that we have to turn to the little dark clouds and to have faith that in that place, you know, there's going to be a redemption. There's going to be something positive. There's going to be a God spark. There's going to be a moment of compassion. That's Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what they went into the into the temple. They found like a little jar of oil. They said, oh, "It's dark. There's only one jar of oil, but we we're going to light it, and it's going to remain lit." That's really the message of Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think that's what Ramamu does every week. Mm-hmm. I think that every single week when people come in. I don't, I don't, people tell me this, but I, I don't know about you guys, but pe- people have told me, and I, and I know it myself, that I can come in to Friday night with the biggest cloud hanging over my head. It's like, you know, I've got this on my head and that on my head, and I walk into Romu, and somebody said this when I came here, you walk into Romu, I think it was Kim, you walk into Romu, and, and it's, it feels like, the, the, it feels like light. It feels, and, th- and that's what every show should feel like. Rome, every shul and every place where people go to worship. It should be a place that helps us do the turning towards the place in our life that we are avoid dancing. Right? Mm-hmm. right? That's, that's what shul is all about. Mm. It's like, you know, it's you get to meet yourself. I always have people reach out and meet people, but really the truth is, that's just, you know, the real meeting is happening between us, you know, amongst ourselves, with ourselves. Because the whole week you can be a stranger to yourself, and then you come Friday night, you, and you sit down and you say, oh, there I am. It's so nice to meet me again. You know? That's really what spiritual practice is, in my opinion. It's all that good stuff, Jewish identity, and yeah, all that, it's all great. But, you know, if you strengthened your Jewish identity but you forgot who you are, then, then you know, it's not really the best spiritual practice, in my opinion. It's super important for us to maintain a very core Jewish identity. It's very important. It's also really important to touch our basic core humanity as often as we can. And we do it with our children, we do it with our lovers, and so on. But, you know, I think that, um, you know, approaching the dark cloud is, is uh, it, it's an optimistic way of thinking about spiritual practice. Yeah. And I hope that, uh, you know, Hanukkah, that the light of Hanukkah, and I, I'll tell you one last thing, okay, and then we, we're going to go eat. The, I didn't say this. I was at an interfaith Thanksgiving thing last Wednesday, and uh, and I didn't say this. And I, I want to forgot to say it, but I, I feel like I should say it now. The word Jew, we weren't called Jews, right? We were called Israelites. At a certain point, we started. We, were, we came from the tribe of Judah, and so we began to be called Jews. So let me tell you a little bit about Judah because it's very connected to Hanukkah too. Judah. Yehuda gets his name as the fourth child of Jacob and Leah. After the first three, Leah has three children before Judah, and each one she says, now my husband will love me. Right? That's what she says. Reuven, look God, now my husband will love me. Didn't work out. Jacob didn't love her. Then the second one, Shimon, now my husband will, God listen to me, now my husband will love me. Didn't work out. And the third Lady, she says, oh, now my husband will want to escort me. Lady, apami laveni ishi. Didn't work out. Yehuda. Comes Yehuda. She says, now I'm done waiting for my husband. Hapam, this time I'll be thankful to God. Just for the fact that God loves me. Hapam odeh adonai. Now I will thank God for what I have. Judah's name means now I know God loves me. It's not about my husband anymore. I'm okay. 
And we get called Jews after the word thank you. Hapam Odeh, Yehuda, Toda Rabah, Toda, Yehuda, Jew. Every Jew, we should say every person who really deeply knows thanksgiving and gratitude, that person is Jewish. Right? There's all kinds of questions, you know, in different shuls, whatever. But in my book, mm. you know, if you know what it is to be thankful, I just want to say to, um, to our hosts, mm -hmm. yeah. to Sally and Steve, that um, it's so wonderful to be here with you. It's From the minute that I to have you here, it's so great. Mm -hmm. Filling up our living room. It's great. It's just the way that it's just the way that you guys are. From the moment that I met you, and the moment that you came with Jesse and uh, met Steve, and I said, "Wow, unbelievable!" We had coffee together at Cafe Edgar's. We did, didn't we? An interesting cup of tea. And, <laughs> and we talked about the divine feminine because was, I was reading a lot about that, and it's interesting <laughs> that I actually see that embedded just in so many of the stories. And what you're finishing on is a really profound aspect of that story from the, the feminine perception of religion, which there always is in Judaism. That's why it's so brilliant, because it ties it in. But in that story of Leia finding that the Jew, in the Judah, was the, hard to say, self-love, love, divine love, the connection of it all, with and without the husband. But you know, better with, but, you know, so I love that you're from the first That's what I'm hearing. That's feminist. what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Leia said better with. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Leia, Leia is very much connected to Hanukkah because Leia's name is has the numerical value of 36, and there are 36 candles on Hanukkah. Leia is, Leia is the aspect of the one who, on the outside, wasn't perceived as beautiful, but on the inside... It was all light with her. She had beautiful eyes, soft eyes. So she could really see what it was to be grateful. And that's what the Hanukkah is all about, looking with soft eyes at the candle, looking with soft eyes at ourselves, looking with soft, with soft eyes at the people around us. So uh, I want to thank you. As I'm going to say, I want to thank all of you for coming out, um, to share uh, wisdom, to share insight. And, uh, and also... There are some questions on the bottom. <laughs> and if you'd like to email me, if you'd like to email me, because this was a little bit uh, more frontal than I would have liked, but we had a little bit, you know, not so much time. If there are things that you'd like to share with me about this teaching, what, it com what brings for you, and what comes up, I'll be happy to respond. We can collect a little collection of teachings from tonight, of insights. You can write anonymously, too, if you like. Uh, and uh, write out your email. And, uh, and let everybody know here that uh, Romumu uh, is having a wonderful Hanukkah party that uh, we'd be happy if you all came to visit. And... Uh, December 22nd. On December 22nd in the city. And uh, 